0: pray as your people. Amen. Amen. Thank you for praying with me. Please be seated. I'm loving all of the uh, Christmas sweaters I'm seeing. You know it's the first Sunday of Advent uh, when everybody dresses the part. That is awesome. That is a lot of fun. Um, I love the stage too, although I got to admit, Jeff, um, it kind of looks like you're the baby Jesus. I'm not sure that's what we were going for, and he is a little tall for the part, but uh, it is great to be here on the first Sunday of Advent and anticipating Christmas. We're actually going to get ready for Christmas uh, by just continuing the same sermon series we have been in, because we're going through the New Testament book of Galatians, which explains the heart of the gospel, and the gospel is why Jesus came. It's what Christmas is all about. And uh, so I want to encourage us as we get in there, if you've got your Bibles, grab them. Uh, let me also just mention, I, I appreciated Jerry mentioning earlier our family connection, uh, a family gathering and, and um, Harvest Connections events tonight. I hope to see you. We're going to have a fantastic time at dinner tonight. Everybody's invited at 5 o'clock. Uh, and if you are newer to the church, hope to see you at 4 o'clock uh, where you get to know us and we get to know you a little better. It's always a great time and a great way to start the holiday season. While you're uh, turning in your Bibles to Galatians, we're going to be in chapter 4 this morning, sort of picking up where we left off. Um, I want to start by um, asking you if you notice anything wrong with this picture. (laughs) The internet is good for something. Uh, I just found that this week, and you know, I don't know a whole lot about horses. I've ridden them a few times, but I've never like owned horses or anything. I don't really know a lot about horses, but I'm pretty sure that that doesn't work. (laughs) You don't have to be a master uh, equestrian, whatever they call it. What do they call a horse person? Anyway, whatever. Um, To know that, like, that's probably not... I I have a feeling if that um, horse wanted to just giddy up and go, that little chair is probably not going to stop him. I thought of that picture uh, because I was thinking of a a story, it's kind of a... um, um, one of these kind of cultural things that gets told about, um, if you, if you chain up a young elephant, have you heard the story about, like, an elephant, a baby elephant and a rope? So as the story goes, if there's a baby elephant, you want to train it, like, I don't know how many of us are in danger of being in that situation, but just go with me here for a minute, um, that when you got a baby elephant, you can, like, tie a rope around its leg and stake it into the ground, and then the baby elephant, you know, can't move, and then as, so the story goes, as the elephant grows, um, You have now trained it such that even as an adult, if you tie a rope around its leg and stake it to the ground, the elephant will not go beyond the length of the rope, even though by then it's plenty strong enough to just rip that stake up out of the ground and go wherever it wants to go. But sort of the moral of the story is, you know, the elephant is free to go beyond the boundaries of the rope, but it's not convinced in its own mind that it can, and so its own mind becomes a prison that holds it back. It behaves as if it's still bound, even though it's free. That's really actually what Galatians 4 is all about this morning. Now, um, just for the record, I should point out that I think this story is an urban legend. Um, I've never found anything from anybody who actually raises or trains elephants that convinces me that that's true. It's a popular story in like, the business world and in the motivational speaker circuit, because uh, it's a fitting illustration. Um, I don't think it's true, although I know even less about elephants than I do horses, so I don't know. Maybe it is true. I did ask Amy once if we could get a pet elephant. <laughs> I had lots of really good reasons I was ready to lay on her, and she responded, Sure, but you've got to clean up after it. <laughs> Short conversation. That just ended. No, I'm kidding, that never happened. But um, I'm not sure the elephant story ever happened either. But whether it's a true story or not, it does illustrate this, this idea, right? That sometimes you can get to a point where you are free. And yet you behave as if you're still bound. You keep going back to destructive, sinful behavior, even when you've been freed from it. And that is the message of Galatians chapter 4, which we're going to see this morning. Um, just real quick, to kind of highlight where we're going for the rest of this Advent season, these next couple of Sundays. Last week, and we looked at chapter 3, which is really the heart of the book of Galatians. The, the essence of the message of the whole book is right there in that third chapter, that there is the path of law and the path of grace, and Jesus is the path of of grace that frees us from the performance treadmill, the need to constantly try to keep following God's rules. When you become a Christian, Christ frees you from that. He's followed the rules for us. He's paid the penalty for us when he died on the cross. And so it was just the statement of fact that a relationship with God comes from trusting his work, not from our own efforts to be good people. That's the heart of the gospel. Now, where Galatians is going next, today in chapter 4, is going to start to personalize this and apply it. Today we're going to see how that fact shapes our identity as people. This starts to get really personal. When you become a Christian, the gospel actually shapes who you are and who you understand yourself to be. Next week in chapter 5, we're going to largely see how that new identity works itself out in a lifestyle, how we live differently because of this identity. And lastly, in chapter 6, we're going to see the kind of community that is produced by people who have this new identity. So today it's all about the gospel identity we have. Next week it's how we live that out individually. Chapter 6, the week before Christmas, will be the community that we form as a church as a result. That's a little look at where we're headed. And with that in mind, let's jump right in to Galatians chapter 4. And I actually um, cheated a little bit last week, some of you may have noticed if you were following closely, in that I didn't quite finish chapter 3. Uh, we stopped at verse 25, and I want to pick it up from there. That, that stop was on purpose because the last couple of verses of chapter 3 are really leading into chapter 4. It says, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Remember, this is written to Christian people. This is a letter written to a, Christ, a group of Christians, a church. Uh, a group of churches, actually, in the first century. As many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ And then we encounter probably the second most quoted verse from the entire book of Galatians. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to promise. This whole section starts out by telling us right off the bat that Jesus Christ is actually a whole new personal identity. The Bible never presents the Christian faith as simply a religion or, or kind of what you put in the religious or spiritual box of your life, but then you've got all these other boxes. It presents the gospel as the, uh, the utter center of your entire life, and when you come to faith in Christ, it changes who you are from the ground up at the identity level. Our very status has changed. He says in verse 26, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. Now, we're going to go back to that at the beginning of chapter 4, so we'll come back to that in a second. Just before he gets into what it means to be a son and an heir, he clarifies what it means to have a new identity versus some of the alternatives. He says, in Christ, you, 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 uh, when you uh, respond positively to the gospel and become a Christian, you put on Christ sort of like a garment, like clothing. Like you get up in the morning and you put on your clothes before you go out. He says, well, you're now putting on Christ. And what he means by that is simply that like your clothes are, among other things, sort of speak to your identity. That's been true in in every culture, in human experience. Certain people dress differently, and that says different things about you. And In virtually every culture that has ever existed, there are some clothes that are understood to be men's clothes and some that are understood to be women's clothes. There's clothing that designates social status and position, fine and fancy clothes for the rich and wealthy, and uh, rough, rugged clothing for the hard workers, and poor, threadbare clothing for the poor, and so on and so forth. So often, the clothes make the man, right, as the saying goes. Um, How you dress says something about who you are or who you aspire to be. That's the idea that's being picked up here. You put on Christ when you become a Christian like your clothing. Jesus is what people see in me. Jesus is who I am. Jesus now shapes everything about me. And before he unpacks a little bit about what that means, he contrasts it with three common worldly identities in verse 28. Ethnicity, social economic status, and gender. He says there is neither, in verse 28, Jew nor Greek. Of course, in the first century, that was a major dividing line, especially in churches. churches. To be Jewish uh, meant that you were a descendant of Abraham through Isaac and Jacob. You were one of God's people if you were just lucky enough to be born Jewish. That was the idea. So there was this real division in the the Old Testament Jewish mindset that between us, the Jews, who are God's people, and others who are not God's people. He says that you you don't wear your ethnic background like identity anymore. That's gone. We're all now one in Christ who have embraced him as our Lord and Savior. Needless to say, All three of these are still very much alive and well today. Certainly, ethnicity and ethnic background is a huge, painfully huge issue in modern America. Whether it's tribal bloodshed in Africa or racism in the USA, it's all over the place. One thing is abundantly clear. We define ourselves and others by our skin color wearing our ethnic background like clothing. This is who I am, and it says a lot about my identity and where I fit in society. And often the clash between those different ethnic places is not a pleasant one. It at least results in Twitter firestorms. Sometimes it results in much worse. The gospel changes that. This is powerful stuff. It's not just ethnic background, it's social and economic status. You are neither slave nor free, he says. The word slave there is bond servant, Um, not quite what we think of with slavery, but nonetheless it was definitely a low uh, worker class in which you didn't have full control uh, over your life. The wealthy landowners had all the power, they had the position uh, in the first century. The poorer workers in the first century Roman Empire, they had far less freedom, they had far less opportunity. Uh, this whole bond servant idea was that you would essentially sell your labor to a boss for a period, usually lasting several years. Now you still had certain rights as an individual citizen, but there was, you couldn't just up and move if you wanted to. I mean, you owed your boss. There was control over your life. You had to give up because you had to work. You had no choice. This becomes an identity, a source of pride for the rich. I'm I'm the landowner. I'm the wealthy. I've got power. I can do what I want, and so I dress the part and I look the part. And it also becomes a source of shame for the poor. Yes, I'm just a bondservant. I can't do this. I can't do that. I can't wait to get out of this. It becomes an identity. That's who I am. And it's still an identity. What we are is what we do. There's American culture for you. (laughs) What we are is what we do, what we can accomplish, what we can achieve. Our identity is wrapped up in this. My wife and I had the privilege of being really challenged on this um, many, many years ago when I was in graduate school. We were uh, only been married a couple of years. I was in a seminary and one of the uh, seminary instructors was a medical doctor. She'd served as a, a missionary in Pakistan for decades and she was back here now uh, caring for her aging mother who had gotten to a place where she was infirm and essentially bedridden i know she couldn't leave the house and i think she could leave bed but she was conscious and she was lucid and she wasn't in danger of dying anytime soon she was just really really sick and so she was caring for her mother and eventually uh, you know i'll be honest with you to this day i actually don't know her mother's name because we all got to know her as praying mama that's how dr mary my instructor referred to her just praying mama that's how we got to know her because This was a lady who had served Christ for years, and she couldn't do anything anymore. But from all intents and purposes, it looked like she was going to be around for a while. And so she said, I can't do much of anything but pray when I'm awake. So when I'm awake, I want to pray. So she's constantly pestering her daughter. Give me prayer requests. Let me know what's going on. Tell me about your students. I want to pray for them. She got my name and my wife's name. She prayed for us. She didn't even know us. But she prayed for us. I think what was so challenging for me, apart from the fact that that was incredibly touching, that she cared for us in that way, is how would I feel? We were a couple of young, ambitious, driven, (laughs) go-getters. We're in seminary. We're going to go take the world for Christ, right? Is that my identity? What if I could do nothing but just lay there and have people care for me and pray? i got to admit, I would wonder if my life was worth anything. Praying Mama challenged me on that. We don't wear our social and economic status anymore as... And identity. And lastly, gender. Uh, There's neither male nor female. Uh, What he means is, again, in terms of position and status with Christ. um, There have always been differences in various societies between men and women, but certainly the one he's referring to here back in that time was that women were not allowed to inherit property. Uh, The historians and the sociologists call this primogeniture. It's it's what many traditional societies do, where the, the, the majority of the inheritance, or in some cases, all of the inheritance, always goes to the eldest son. In a family, so if there's like four daughters and the little baby is a boy, sorry, girls, um, little brother inherits just because he's male and you're not. I mean, so it, you can see how in a society like you're, these, women are wearing their femaleness as clothing. It's 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 a identi- it's um, identifying them. It's it's announcing that they're part of a class of people that, in that case, certainly when it came to inheritance rights, was a second class group of people. Now that leads us all back to this changed status. Back to verse 26, he said, In Christ we are all sons of God. He elaborates on that as chapter 4 begins. He says, If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And then he goes on and explains, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave or a bondservant, although he's the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In essence, what the Apostle Paul is saying here is he's drawing an analogy. Back then, if um, you did have a wealthy landowner, you would have a son. the son was going to inherit at some point. Uh, usually that date, uh, from what I've read, was 25 back then. They had to reach the age of 25 before they could come into their full inheritance. But in the meantime, you know, if he's like eight years old, he's not ready to run the estate yet. He's too... He's too young. He he can't do it yet. So, yes, he's an heir, but in many ways he's treated just like the other bond servants. I mean, he's got people over him that are telling him, do this, do that. You can't do this. You can't do that. He's got to follow everybody else's orders until he comes of age. All of a sudden then, he comes of age and he gets to boss everybody else around. Now he's in charge. Now the guy that was telling him what to do, he doesn't have to listen to him. In fact, he can fire him if he wants to. The situation has totally changed. Why? Because... He has the status of an heir. You got the eight-year-old heir and the eight-year-old bondservant. They both become 25. Nothing changes for the bondservant. Everything changes for the heir. Why? Because of his identity. He's the inheriting son. It makes all the difference for him. Well, the apostle Paul says, well, similarly, God's people in the Old Testament times, under the law, like we talked about last week, they were like that youngster. It's like God's people were told, do this, don't do that. Do this, don't do that. And they just had to follow that. Because you're under this guardian, but now when Christ comes, he changes everything. In fact, he presses the analogy a little further. He's like, you weren't naturally sons of God. You were bondservants. But what if you worked for a wealthy landowner, and you were one of the bondservants, but he didn't have any sons? There was no heir. And he looked at you and said, I'm going to adopt you. So that legally, you're now my child. So that when you come of age, you're going to inherit this as if you were my child. He says, that's what's happened to you in Christ. That's what's happened to you in Christ. Your status has changed. And before we move on, let me point out that what this means is we lack absolutely nothing as Christians. Nothing. Um, Ladies, it may in particular seem a little bit strange to you to be referred to as a son in this passage. Um, In our day and age, that can initially sound a little bit chauvinistic, a little bit male-dominated. In fact, the Revised Standard Version translation of the Bible translates the word sons, children. It says, you are all now children of God, because it doesn't want to sound chauvinistic. But actually, um, there is an incredible empowerment here, if I could use that term, for women in Christ. I mean, first of all, if Christian men have to get stuck with the label, part of the bride of Christ... You ladies can live with being called a son every now and then, okay? Fair is fair. So (laughs) the Bible's pretty even-handed about how it throws these designations around, okay? But in reality, there's more than that going on here. What's actually happening is by using the word son, which is the word that the apostle Paul used when he wrote this, he's actually elevating the status of women far above and beyond what their current culture would have allowed. Because it's saying now in Christ, it doesn't matter if you're a male or female, that used to make all the difference. Now it makes no difference. In Christ, you are in the son's position. You are the heir. You get it all. That's what's being said here. There is nothing I possess in Christ as a Christian man that my beautiful wife does not possess in Christ as a Christian woman. Not because she's married to me, but because she's committed to Christ. That changes your identity. And you see how freeing that is. And that's the whole point of this. As a Christian, you lack nothing. A Christian woman has everything a Christian man does. A poor Christian has everything a wealthy Christian does. A single Christian has everything a married Christian does. An Asian Christian has everything a white, black, Hispanic Christian does. In Christ, those old designations don't matter. We put on Christ, and that makes us heirs. So what have we inherited? What are we heirs of? He goes on and explains in verses 4 to 7. We've inherited at least two things in this passage. First of all, a positional uh, acceptance. To put it that way, that's what's already been said. You're you're an heir now. Uh, That means you're going to inherit heaven. You get to be related to God as a son, as a daughter. We're adopted into God's family, regardless of performance. It's not if you're good enough, then God will let you into heaven. No, if you're in Christ, you are accepted by God. That's just a fact. You are now the heir, and that makes you legally, as if it were, uh, guaranteed to inherit eternity. So there's this wonderful positional acceptance, but there's also a deep relational intimacy in the passage. Verses 6 and 7. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Abba was a a first century Aramaic word that was kind of like Papa, kind of like Daddy. It's a term of intimacy. And addressing God as Father. God Almighty as Father. It's crazy it's the gospel. So you are no longer a bondservant or slave, but you are a son. And if you are a son, you're an heir. Your status has completely changed. Do you see how freeing this is? It's incredibly freeing. And the difference between freedom and slavery is where the Apostle Paul goes next. Because at this point, the book of Galatians takes a little bit of a turn, and it's going to start saying, okay, now, now that we've got this new identity thing kind of in our minds, what's that mean? How does that... How does that look? How does that work itself out? And it starts to unpack that a little bit for us. First of all, in the next paragraph, he says, Since you are an heir, live like it. Don't go back into the slavery from which Christ freed you. Look at verse 8, he says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God... How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of this world whose slaves you want to be once more? He tells them in their context, you're observing days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. I preach the gospel to you and it's not making any difference because it changed your identity, but you're living as if it didn't. You're like that elephant, that mythical elephant, still stuck to something that you're no longer stuck to, but you're acting as if you are. What he's telling them in their context is that, you remember there's this big debate going on between these people that were telling the Galatian Christians, you have to follow the Old Testament rules in order to be saved. Now that you believe in Jesus, you still got to go follow the Old Testament. The whole point of the book of Galatians is, no, you don't. No, you don't. And so what he's saying is if you listen to those guys... If you actually think you got to get back on the performance treadmill and and earn enough good uh, credit with God to make him happy, then what you're doing is you're going right back into the endless and hopeless performance treadmill. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus got them off of that. It, It would be crazy for them to go back to that again. It's like they're locked in a dungeon and he busted the door open. He's like, come on out. And they're like, no, I'm good. You're free. Why would you keep rotting in this cell? By the way, why would they? Why would they? This is one of those things where when you stop and think about what the Bible is saying for a minute, I don't know about you, but it just strikes me as odd. It's like, okay, here's all this great truth about you know, the gospel is freedom and, 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 and the, the law is slavery and Jesus has freed you from the gospel. So yeah, who wouldn't want the gospel? See, so yes, I believe in the gospel. I'm saved by grace, so what's the problem? And then here he's like, well, don't go back to slavery. Don't go back to slavery. Why is that even an issue? If anything else that's been said in the book is true, why would there even be an issue of people going back into slavery? Why would they go back into a performance mindset if Jesus has freed them from it? That's a good question. Why do we? Why do we? Most Christians, I would submit, know that we are saved by grace. Um, I wouldn't actually fault you if deep down inside, somewhere in these past three weeks, you felt like Galatians, saved by grace. Got it. <laughs> I got it in chapter one. Why are we still talking about this? I mean, Not a hard concept. I understand that. I believe it. I got it. Can, can, can we move on? Talk about something else? I mean, like, I got it. Why are we just beating this dead horse? Why didn't Paul just have one chapter in Galatians? Why is there six? Why do we have to keep talking about this? I understand it. We understand and we believe, at least in our minds, the gospel. And yet we often find ourselves stuck on the performance treadmill anyway. So why do we go where we know we need not go? I'm not in touch of a poet, that's all I got. Why do we go where we know we don't have to go? Why are we constantly finding ourselves wondering if we're measuring up and building our sense of identity or seeing our sense of identity crumble based on performance factors? At least a couple of reasons. There's probably a lot more than this. But for our time, let me just suggest two. It's because we have a performance culture and because we have prideful hearts. One of those influences is outside of us, although we, we create it. All human beings together create culture. But it's outside of us. The other one is inside of us. I'm I'm certain certain it's no news to any of us that have lived in modern America for any length of time to designate our culture as a performance culture. It's just—it's like the air that we breathe. We're around it constantly. Uh, He he referred in verse 9 to, he's like, how can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Well, one of the weak and worthless elementary principles of our world, as Scripture uses the term, is the performance standard. You're worth something if you measure up. And if you can show that you measure up, then you can feel good about yourself. If you don't measure up, you ought to feel awful about yourself. That's how the world we live in works. We're constantly evaluated at every turn. From school, how'd you do on the test? Did you achieve? Did you get it done? Did you pass? Did you fail? To work, man, I realize that some, some careers and some employers are like worse about this or more intense about it than others, but... Some of you guys work in jobs that when I hear you talk about what your work environment is like, I mean, it just boggles the mind of the intense pressure that is sometimes put on workers to perform, whether it's a sales position or sometimes even just an engineering or management position. If you're not performing, if you're not constantly showing your performance, you're out. It becomes a whole culture of constantly having to justify why the company hired you. And even when you're not thinking about it, like, you're always on that track. Whew, I succeeded this time, but what about next time? It's never ending. It's school, it's work, it's advertising. Boy, there's a tricky business, isn't there? Like, as an advertiser, you have to be nice enough to people to get them to listen to you, but you also have to convince them that they're not measuring up, at least not until they buy your product or your service. So we paint these wonderful, idyllic pictures in advertising and we all look at that and go, oh, my life doesn't look like that. Well, buy this mascara, buy that car, take this vacation, and it will, right? I mean, we all know what's going on there, but it's a constant drumbeat of you need more of something in your life than what you've got. You're not measuring up to what everybody else is doing. Actually, everybody else is just on the same treadmill chasing these ghosts, but, but we're all convinced that they're there because they're constantly bombarded. Social media, everyone's best face for it. It goes on and on and on. Bottom line is this, that's, that's the, the ocean we swim in, that's the air that we breathe, even when we're not thinking about it. Put it this way, the average American, according to the studies that measure this stuff, I'll assume that they're, that they're correct, the average American has about 120, a little over 120 waking hours every week. 120 hours where you're awake every single week. Now, if you spend one and a half of those here, in church, on a Sunday morning, hearing the gospel of freedom talked about and explained and and singing about it and, and responding to it through communion and through offerings and through song and all these other things, you get an hour and a half of that every week, which, by the way, presupposes that you're in church every week. You got an hour and a half a week. And then we go out and we spend 119 hours, on average, swimming in an ocean of performance. Good night. No wonder we're constantly wondering. i got this niggling stuff in the back of our head saying, you're not good enough. You're not a good enough mom. You're not a good enough employee. You don't make enough money. You're not doing this enough. You're not doing that enough. Measure up. It's the air we breathe. So it's our performance culture, but I think it's also our prideful hearts. As much as we swim in a culture that can often be very toxic with its performance standards, we got to be honest since I can't just blame this all on the culture, right? First of all, I'm part of culture. But more importantly, it isn't all just culture. It's that the culture's performance standards are resonating with something in me, and the Bible calls it pride. Put it another way, I like it when I do measure up. I like that That feeling. How great does it feel when it's my turn to post the cool vacation pictures on Instagram or Facebook and get all the yay likes and I'm jealous comments. Cool, my turn. There's nothing wrong with posting stuff on Facebook. I do that all the time too, but we get the point, right? Almost everybody can outperform the average somewhere in some aspect of life. You know, maybe you were never good in school, but you were great at sports, so you love it when the guys want to get together and play basketball, because you can run circles around most of them. And everybody's like, oh, i got to guard him. And you're like, yes. Maybe, maybe, you're, maybe you, you feel like a failure at home. Your marriage is just on the rocks, and your kids don't even like you, and you're like, I just, man, home is just a toxic place. I'm a failure as a parent. I'm a failure as a, a, a mom or dad or husband or wife. But you kill it at work. You're succeeding there. You're constantly getting promotions and raises. What do we do? We do what almost every human being will do we go become a workaholic. Because there's something in my heart that needs the affirmation. I need to succeed. I need to beat the average somewhere so that I can feel good about myself. And I'm building my identity on that thing, whatever it is. The bottom line is we all want to succeed through performance because of our sin nature. That's a pretty potent combination. If we've got a performance culture and performance-oriented hearts, how do we experience gospel freedom? Now, one of the Apostle Paul, is saying, don't get back on that treadmill because he knows like that's where we go by default, even when we know and believe the gospel of freedom. So how do we overcome that? Well, this chapter ends with two sort of larger thoughts that answer that. I'm going to summarize them uh, quickly for the sake of time. How do we overcome this performance treadmill? After exhorting them not to go back and become slaves again, He tells them to do two things. First of all, he says, return to the original joy that you had in Christ. Return to the original joy you had in Christ. That's verses 12 all the way down to 20. Let me just read the first couple of those verses for us. He says, brothers, I entreat you. He says, I'm begging you, I'm exhorting you, please spend some time. He says, become as I am, become as I am. Let's pause right there. One thing he's saying is, get off the treadmill by living your life the way I have learned to live mine. What's he referring to there? He's referring to his love of the gospel and his utter disdain of his performance. One thing, personally speaking, I've always loved about reading the writings of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament um, some people love him. He drives people crazy sometimes because he uses run-on sentences and he can be hard to follow. But he has all these great truths. You know, it's, there's like this love-hate relationship with the Apostle Paul in his writings. Here's one thing I love about him. Whatever else you can say about him, this is a guy who never got over the gospel. He never got over it. It never got old. To him, that Jesus would love him enough to come be a man and die for him and give him a new life, not based on his performance. That so deeply impacted him and changed his identity that it never got old. For him, it was never like, yeah, saved by grace, got it. Can we move on and talk about something more interesting? For him, it's like, what could possibly be worth talking about? More than this. And even toward the very end of his life, you see the same enthusiasm and passion for the gospel that he wrote about in his early days after his initial conversion. He says, become as I am. And he goes on and tells them, you know, it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. He apparently hung out in Galatia for a while because he was too sick to keep traveling. And so he started preaching the gospel. He says, though, my condition was a trial to you. You didn't scorn or despise me. You received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of the blessing that you felt? He's saying, when I first preached the gospel to you, you were so excited to hear about the freedom of Christ. You not only became Christians, but you delighted to just like take care of me and love me. It totally changed who you were as people. He tells them, go back and remember the blessing you felt at God's love. Have you ever, Christian, felt that blessing? Or has it been a long time since the gospel has really moved you? One way to rekindle that fire is remind yourself of your own newfound enthusiasm for the gospel when it was newfound, especially after a while. And by the way, those of you that haven't been Christians for more than a couple of years, you just got to know, like at some point, it's going to get old, because we're human. And we get bored, and we get distracted, and we start sinning, and we kind of go, yeah, 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 I already know that, I don't need to talk about that anymore. And that shows that the gospel right now is just lodging in my head, not my heart. It's just like going through a honeymoon phase and then settling into the reality of marriage. Sometimes you go through a honeymoon phase with God and then settle into a reality where the gospel just doesn't move your heart anymore. And remembering how excited we were about the gospel we first encountered it can be one way to rediscover that joy. Relive the story, your own story. Tell other people about it. How did you come to Christ? What made you see the truth of the gospel? How has Jesus changed you since then? Sometimes just the act of retelling that story makes you remember who Jesus has been to you. By the way, listen to other people's stories. It's one of the reasons I love uh, baptisms and times where I'm with people and we're just sharing how people came to faith in Christ. The enthusiasm of somebody who's figuring God out for the first time is infectious. It's infectious. It's infectious. Well, the first thing he tells them to do is remember their past joy. And then the second thing he tells them is to simply tie this up by reminding them that freedom is better than slavery. The, the last 11 verses of the chapter, I would just put that label over it. Um, freedom is better than slavery, verses 21 to 31. Now, this is, it's 11 verses. It's, it's odd, it's complex, it's difficult to try to summarize, and so I'm going to try anyway. But in case I fail... Uh, to summarize this in just a couple of minutes. Here's the bottom line. Freedom is better than slavery, okay? He says, realize that performance leads to slavery and freedom is only found in trusting God's work. If you keep remembering that, it will help you stay off the treadmill. How does he make this point? Well, he makes this point um, by writing one of the most confounding and bizarre passages the Apostle Paul wrote anywhere, which makes this kind of a fun way to end a chapter. Um... The Apostle Paul here initially appears to be doing the very thing that all of my seminary professors in graduate school told me no Christian should ever do. And then here in the Bible, the Apostle Paul is doing it. So that's kind of fun, isn't it? See, now you all want to read this, don't you? It was awesome. Okay, what I'm talking about is um, we call interpreting the Bible allegorically. That is, introducing a meaning to it that isn't really there. It kind of looks like that's what Paul's doing here. I don't think it is. Let me explain. He says, tell me, verse 21, you who desire to follow the law. Don't you listen to the law? For it is written, and now he goes back to the book of Genesis, the beginning of the Old Testament law, that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. (gasps) These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. You catch all that? How are we doing so far? But Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. And he goes on. Okay, (laughs) it initially sounds like, some of you know, if you're familiar with Genesis, the story, the the literal historical story. It's in Genesis um, 17, if I remember correctly. Uh, Abraham's got his wife Sarah. God promises that he will give Abraham descendants. He and Sarah are way too old to bear children now, especially Sarah. She's way past childbearing age, way past. So it's going to take a miracle. God says, yeah, I'm going to do a miracle. And one of your descendants, and then your kid's going to have kids, and so on and so on. And eventually, one of your descendants is going to save the whole world. He's going to be the Messiah. He's going to be Jesus. Okay, that's the great promise of the Bible. And it starts back in the Bible's very first book. Now, if you know the story, um, that sounded as crazy to Sarah. She was like 90 years old. I'm going to have a baby? What are you talking about? That's impossible. Uh, as it did would to any of the rest of us. And so they got a bright idea, and Sarah said, look, I have this maidservant, and through a bizarre set of circumstances, because the culture was totally different back then, it raises a whole bunch of weird issues for us. She said, honey, I know how we can do this. Um, I'm going to give you my maidservant. You're going to have a child by her, and through the way their culture worked, that child would be his child, and therefore could kind of be considered her child. In other words, this is a way that Abraham and Sarah said, let's help God out a little bit. I know he promised a miracle, but, but doggone it, that's just impossible. And I'm not sure God can do that. So let's help. And that's exactly what they did. So Abraham, his first son, was actually born through his wife's maidservant, a young man by the name of Ishmael. And later God comes to him and says, dude, why did you do that? And Abraham's like, basically, I'm, you can read the story. He's like, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have. But, you know, now that he's here, <laughs> would you go ahead and just bless him and consider this the son that you promised me? And God says, No. No. I said, you're going to have a son by a miracle. Your wife's going to have a son by a miracle, and she is, and she did. Sarah conceives. Isaac is born. It's miraculous. No way human biology and reproductive um, biology could explain that. It's a miracle. So Abraham's second son, Isaac, is the one that God actually promised, and he is the one who ended up being the... um, The uh, Messiah was his descendant, and Jesus comes to save the world. So what's the point of all this? What the Apostle Paul is doing here is he's pointing out that (laughs) Abraham was promised a son, but he actually had two sons, didn't he? It's right there in the Bible. You can read about it. The Bible's totally honest. One son came by God's promise. It was a miracle. The other son came when Abraham and Sarah tried to help God out through their own human efforts. But God was not swayed. God was not swayed. The one son who came by human efforts, God said, that, that's fine, I'll take care of that boy, and you know he'll be fine, and God did take care of him, and that was all great, but that's not the son of promise. The son of promise is the one through whom salvation comes to the world. Whereas following the Old Testament law is like Abraham and Sarah trying to get God's blessings through their own efforts. I'm going to help God out. To follow, you know what the Apostle Paul is saying? If we want to follow the rules of the Old Testament to earn our way to heaven, what we're really saying is that Jesus isn't good enough. That's the Bible. You're saying Jesus, God in human flesh, isn't good enough. I have to help him out by adding some of my own good efforts to earn my way into heaven. No, God says that doesn't work. The whole history of the Old Testament shows us that when we try to help God out, He says, no. I will bring about salvation my way, and it's going to be a miracle. That's exactly what happened when Jesus came to earth as a man and died and then miraculously rose from the dead to pay the penalty for our sins. So the point is, I don't think the Apostle Paul is introducing a meaning that didn't exist. He's actually reading the Bible the way it's meant to be read, that this whole business about Abraham's sons is about salvation. And that's what he's doing with this. So here's the point. The Bible teaches we can enjoy God's blessings through our efforts and performance. So that's the second response. How do you avoid getting on the treadmill? You remember your original joy in Christ and you realize that the treadmill only leads to slavery. (laughs) That's been the consistent message of the Bible from day one. Well, so ends chapter four. Next week, we're going to pick this up and talk about the the lifestyle that sort of emerges from this identity. But let me conclude with a couple of practical thoughts right now. If, If I were to leave today and take this identity stuff seriously, what should I do? Let me suggest a couple of things in closing how do i develop a a, a gospel identity in the midst of a a prideful heart and a performance culture let me suggest three things briefly first we need to get god's word in us and get god's people around us this is a drum we beat pretty consistently at harvest and i'm totally unapologetic about that (laughs) Um, We're going to keep beating it. If you're new to our church, get used to it. We'd love to have you stay, but this is what it's going to be like, right? We're going to talk about the importance of the Bible and we're going to talk about the importance of Christian community. Because once again, if if I'm getting 90 minutes of Bible stuff and 119 hours of performance stuff, I've got to find a way to start counteracting that. I've got to get God's word into me. I was talking to a friend uh, recently who just kind of said, you know, we're going through Galatians. So every morning I get up and I read one chapter of Galatians. Doesn't take me that long to do, but in a week, I get through the entire book. There's only six chapters, and then I got one kind of fudge day in there. It's great. So, through this entire series, we'll have been through the book of Galatians six or seven times. That's awesome. You get familiar with it. So, when you come to church, it's much more real, but it's also a part of your week. It's a simple approach. How am I getting God's word into me? Have a plan. Maybe it's not that one, maybe it's a different one, but be in God's word more than just on Sunday mornings. Also, be in regular relationship with God's people relationships where we intentionally go deeper and talk about doing life together and how what we're struggling with what's going on what we're learning in the bible and how it shapes our attitudes it's okay to get together and just have fun too but we want relationships that go beyond fun christian community is where we intentionally help one another grow in our faith you can do that by joining one of our community life groups if you're not already in it that's why those groups exist if you are in one of those groups, don't just show up and answer a few Bible questions and go home. Reveal what's really going on in your life. Speak to one another as you build trust about what's going on in their lives. Let's help each other live this gospel identity out. I hope you come tonight to the family gathering. It's a fun dinner. You get to hear about what's going on in the church, but most importantly, you get to meet people. And by the way, last point on this, specifically to those of us who are already well grounded here at Harvest, like this is our church home, we're members, we've been here for a while. We have to constantly have an attitude of welcoming people in. Because I'll tell you, every single Sunday, we are constantly meeting folks who are saying, hey, here for the first time, checking the place out. We constantly have people who say, I think this is my church home. How do I get involved? They need relationships with you when you're willing to say, come be part of us. We've got to have eyes to see newer people around us and invite them into God's word and into relationships. So get God's word in you and God's people around you. Secondly, this is another scriptural one. It's hard. Embrace difficulty and pain as a friend. Boy, that's a whole series of sermons right there. (laughs) And we've preached them before. We'll probably preach them again. I'm not going to preach it this morning. But but let me just say, Romans chapter 5 is one example that talks about how, you know, when, when suffering or difficulty comes into our lives, God uses that to build character and to develop hope and ultimately to fix our eyes on Christ. You see, the point is that that sometimes when painful circumstances come, whatever it is, whatever it is, our immediate prayer, especially as modern Americans, but I think pretty much people from every culture do this, is, God, get me out of this! (laughs) Get me out! I want out, which is totally normal. I, I, I pray that prayer too. And that prayer isn't all bad. I mean, it's okay when somebody gets sick to pray that God would heal them. It's okay when somebody's going off on a long journey to pray that they would be safe. I mean, those things are okay. And yet... We also have to ask ourselves, is is safety and health like the ultimate of life, that we would be comfortable and happy? God has something much bigger for us. And often he uses pain to shake us free of the small comforts of this life to experience reliance upon him more fully. Sometimes he knows I won't put myself fully out there unless I have no choice. And it is sometimes the mercy of God that I am in pain so that I finally rely on him like I really should. And that's where the Bible says paradoxically, pain is not good, it's, it's an evil, and yet pain is also a friend to the Christian. It's one of the most beautiful and intense paradoxes in the Bible. C.S. Lewis tells us that God shouts to us in our pain. He speaks. And, by the way, one more. There's also an opportunity to put ourselves in a little bit of pain. <laughs> The previous point was sort of like when, when bad things happen to us and we have no control over it, you know. This is looking for opportunities to take risks for Christ, to, to reach beyond my comfort zone so that I rely fully on him. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, especially if you're a member of our church, this is something I'm exhorting myself to and I want to exhort all of us to. What does it look like to take a, a little bit of a risk to get out of my comfort zone? And put myself in a position where I can't just rely on who I am and what I do. I have to rely on Jesus to show up in order to make this successful. It could be going on a mission trip. It could be looking for an opportunity to share the gospel. Especially with a coworker or a family member or somebody you already know. It's Christmas season. Might God open up an opportunity for you in the next three weeks to share the good news of the gospel with a friend or a family member? Would you risk praying for that opportunity? Would you look for the chance to take it? Maybe it means spending less so we can give more through our Advent offering, and that means I have to give up a little bit of my Christmas. Maybe that means inviting people over to your home for Christmas dinner because there's a whole lot of people who don't have nice homes to go to. It could take a hundred forms. But when we look for opportunities to put ourselves at risk, take risks, as it were, for Jesus... It's a way to say, I don't want to just be in the world of comfort. I want my identity to be based on him so that I rely on him more fully. Would you pray with me? Father, I want to thank you for the privilege of a new and completely reshaped identity. And I pray, Father God, that you would make of us a people here at Harvest who increasingly live what we believe, who stay off the performance treadmill. And even when we find ourselves constantly going back to it in our own personal and unique ways, people who repent and people who embrace the gospel and remember the joy of your love, would you rekindle that love for us as a church this Christmas season as we are in awe of how you came and how much you loved us to come? And you didn't just come to give us comfort, you came to give us new life and new purpose. Fill our hearts, God, and motivate us with that. And as a group of people, we want to respond to your word with joy and with um, the praise that your name is due for your love for us. And these things we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We are going to respond right now to God's word as we do every Sunday, both through music, but also because this is the first Sunday of the month through receiving our monthly offering. We receive the offering once a month here at Harvest as part of our corporate worship service. The other weeks of the month you can give, and we encourage you to give to support the work of the ministry here by using either the offering boxes in the back of the worship center here or online at our website at harvestcc.org. This morning, first Sunday of every month, we receive the offering as part of our corporate worship service because together as the family of God, we respond to God's love for us in a lot of ways, one of which in the Bible is giving financially of what God has given us As we come to the end of our year, um, you can see in your bulletin, we have a little bit of a budget shortfall here at the church. If God would move you to give in response, not even really to that shortfall, but into his grace, his grace for you, then let's give as a reflection of the love of God who gave everything for us. That's what this is all about. And so I'd like to ask the ushers to come forward and we're gonna receive the offering and then we're gonna sing the praises of our God for being the one who gets us off the performance treadmill and gets us into the freedom of knowing Christ's love for us. God.